Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. This is Dr. Terry Gibbs, and today we're talking about healthcare for the transgender patient. We're talking with Dr. Brett Worley, uh, who is a clinical associate professor of OBGYN at Ohio State University. Also, he's the director of Learning Communities Program, which uh, pairs uh, mentors with students. Uh, also, he's uh, been uh, recognized as an outstanding educator of the year in the OBGYN department, also the teacher of the year for the Association of Professors of Gynecology and OB, or APCO. And so he's no stranger to, to teaching, which we're appreciative of, and he, he sounds like he's pretty good at it. Also, he is the lead physician for the uh, Ohio State University's Women's Sexual Health Clinic. So thank you for coming today. Uh, you're eminently qualified to uh, discuss our topic today. Uh, Dr. Worley, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Good. Um, let's start off the uh, conversation with, uh, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, normal care, uh, medical care of the transgender patient. So first of all, talk about the barriers, uh, the access to care and the problems with access that uh, this community has. Yeah, um, so I, I think the, the barriers are, are, they run pretty deep. For instance, for me, uh, I never really had uh, much in the way of transgender education in medical school or residency. Uh, and so a lot of this has been self-taught. Uh, I'm really glad that there are physicians and residents and medical students who are going out of their way sometimes to get additional information and experience with all this. Um, there is some in the, um, the Ohio State uh, College of Medicine curriculum uh, specifically about transgender patients, and I'm so glad of that. There are substantial uh, barriers to care though, for these patients. Uh, something about 150,000 uh, adolescents in the United States who consider themselves transgender. Um, they have barriers that are, are sometimes easily identified and sometimes really difficult to identify. So easy to identify barriers would be things like bathrooms, that, for instance, have a male or female sign on them, um, uh, or uh, boxes that they check when they come to our offices where they check uh, either they're male or female and there's no other um, choice for them. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, there are things that aren't really reported or talked about quite as much, but situations where, for instance, um, they might not get the job that they're hoping for or be able to advance in their career. So this, they'll sometimes have um, uh, more difficulty from my financial or socioeconomic status. Um, they'll sometimes have more challenges as far as mental health issues. So sometimes um, uh, patients will have issues with uh, depression, um, uh, uh, unfortunately issues as far as suicidality. Patients sometimes have more challenges as far as uh, their family. So they'll have more family stress or, or um, struggles that way. Uh, some patients will also have troubles as far as their access to health care. So we started talking about like the, the boxes they check on the forms when they check into our offices. Um, but uh, sometimes they'll have experiences, about a third of them will experience some sort of negative interaction with our office staff, either me as a physician or um, our front desk staff. Um, this is just statistically looking kind of at the nationwide literature. Um, but a lot of times they have a negative um, uh, uh, interactions and, and that really kind of flavors the future of their healthcare. So. For instance, they might be less likely to go ahead and get um, 
more mild issues uh, taken care of, and they might end up in um, uh, more severe pain or severe difficulties later down the road. So there are lots of barriers to care as far as um, uh, um, their circumstances. Uh, and then there are things that we don't even necessarily think about, like, um, you know, uh, important things, uh, things like pronouns that, um, that some patients prefer to use, um, the way we look at them, the way we interact with them, um, more subtle things that, that sometimes happen that can sometimes make uh, their experience in healthcare more and more difficult. So there are lots of barriers at different levels. You mentioned uh, a little bit about terminology. Would you go ahead and expand on terminology on relating or communicating with a, a transgender woman or a transgender man? I, I, it's hard to use like a, a blanket statement about transgender patients. Uh, every single one is is one, and and it's important to kind of um, work with them on a person by person basis in that way. Um, uh, different people are different. Um, we were talking a little bit before about how. Um, uh, terminology can be different uh, depending on the patient. Um, uh, some patients are, um, they have, for instance, like um, uh, female or male sex organs. Uh, they're in some stage of transition uh, with hormones or without hormones. Um, they might have um, uh, undergone surgery to change uh, the, the sex organs that they have. Um, they might not have. Um, they might dress a particular way or might not. They might go ahead and, for instance, have additional facial hair or uh, other types of uh, things like makeup or, or other types of things uh, and can be in various uh, stages of their transition as far as their, their transgender care. Um, and, and I feel like it's just really important to be respectful of those patients, uh, to meet them where they are, um, to ask um, uh, well-informed but open-ended, non-judgmental questions to really kind of get a sense of what makes them them. Um, uh, and to treat them as individuals. I think those are all really important. So, um, you know, pronouns can be important. Um, uh, at Ohio State, we recently kind of transitioned to um, a different electronic electronic record to better reflect transgender care in the sense that um, patients now, instead of known by their legal name, they're sometimes known as their preferred name that'll pop up in our charts. Um, so that makes it a little bit easier. Um, uh, there's uh, signifiers that we can use to go and kind of identify a patient uh, prefers a particular set of pronouns. Um, but just being really open and, and honest and, and um, supportive of the patient. And, and then I, I think invariably, and I know it happens to me and I'm sure um, it, it happens to uh, some other physicians, is that we sometimes make mistakes. We make mistakes. Um, and, and, you know, we say the wrong pronoun. We um, uh, think the wrong thing. Um, and, and it's important to really be humble, I feel like. Um, uh, most transgender patients, they really want health They want to have a positive experience. And, and uh, as physicians, we can be leaders of the healthcare team. Um, uh, but uh, to be humble. And so uh, when a mistake is made, to apologize, um, uh, to do your best to change whatever is the, the situation is um, and, and move forward in that, that patient's care. And sometimes, too, accepting education. As physicians, we sometimes pride ourselves on knowing all the things that we need to know. But in some circumstances, transgender patients, they really know more about themselves than sometimes we do. And so um, getting that education from them in a non-judgmental, accepting, humble way can go uh, really far in building that, that doctor-patient relationship. We're in the office. We have a, a, a patient in front of us, and, and you want to take, uh, you know, a medical history, and you want to talk about chronic disease prevention with 
with these patients? And how do you approach that? Yeah, so I think at the beginning of the appointment, um, uh, there's just some patient-physician relationship building that needs to be done. So, um, you know, sometimes cursorily, um, uh, just looking over their file before you even room. Um, sometimes there are patients that we know a little bit about and, you know, hey, we know that the person has diabetes or uh, has a cholesterol issue in the past. And so that's kind of going to come to the forefront. We know the patient might be transgender and um, maybe have had surgery or not had surgery and kind of be thinking about that. Um, uh, and then just build a relationship with the patient, you know, uh, being uh, warm and open and, and welcoming to the patient um uh despite or i guess uh, and making sure that they feel comfortable um where they are um and then uh asking pronouns can be one way of signifying um uh some uh doctors will go ahead and wear like buttons or other types of paraphernalia saying um uh that they feel comfortable with transgender they've had transgender training um i, I personally don't do that but uh, other um providers do and, and that can also provide kind of a a space of welcome. Um, before you even get to the room too, there might be local organizations where you live that, that could be helpful as far as educating and, and training. So for instance, in Columbus, Ohio, we have a group called Equitas. Um, uh, I believe that there are branches of that nationwide. I, I don't, uh, they might not necessarily be uh, where the, the listener today is, um, but they're in, uh, in our area and uh, undergoing training with a group like them to go ahead and get a better understanding of this can be helpful. Uh, specifically to answer your question, you know, the patient that's coming to me for abnormal uterine bleeding, um, uh, getting a sense of the patient's experience in their own words, um, uh, figuring out kind of early on in the visit what the patient's goals are, um, and uh, learning more about kind of the, the health history, the background, all that kind of thing. And, and together, making a, a patient-doctor kind of joint decision about the, the next steps, um, whether it's evaluation and, and where we need to go with treatment. Th those can all be really interesting. Making sure that the patient has a, um, uh, is included in that process. So like when you when uh, you want to talk about like cancer prevention to a, to a patient, in, in a, a transgender man, um, talking about how, how do you handle uh, breast cancer screening or in a transgender female, how do you uh, handle prostate cancer? Really good question. So um, uh, patients see cancer screening for the um, the organs that they have. So for instance, like uh, a patient that has breast needs to be screened for breast cancer, but also needs to have um, uh, input into that. So um, there are patients that, for instance, uh, might... Um, uh, be transgender men who uh, have had top surgery and have had breasts removed or have not, but don't really feel comfortable having that exam. But maybe there's some sort of like trust building or rapport building that needs to happen in the, the doctor-patient relationship that might not necessarily happen that particular first day. And, and that might happen, you know, in a, a few uh, visits or a few years or whatnot. And, and so um, as a physician or a healthcare provider, I try not to be upset or take offense patient says, you know, hey, doc, thanks, but no thanks, um, uh, to be able to, to respect and help them. And, and then specifically, like if there's, um, if the patient has breaths, um, uh, to go ahead and screen them uh, per the appropriate guidelines that, that are current. Um, I, I don't do prostate cancer screening just because I'm an OBGYN and right. I haven't really trained <laughs> to do that. So um, I, I usually have the patient see their family doctor and get um, uh, that type of care. 
Um, but usually provide supportive care in whatever way I can. And another part of the, the history taking would be, you know, STIs, and partner violence and depression. The the data shows that we see that a little bit more in, in the transgender uh, community. How do you handle that? Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, uh, but screening uh, all patients for uh, interpersonal violence is really important. Um, uh, screening for mental health issues is really important for all patients, making sure that they feel safe um, where they are. Um, those, those are challenges, uh, specifically in this patient population, and, and it can be hard. And, and again, um, uh, while a lot of these patients will sometimes have some of interpersonal violence that they've experienced or um, uh, threats or assaults or that kind of thing, they might not disclose the very first time that they meet us as healthcare providers. Continuing to screen them as that relationship, as that trust builds over subsequent visits is really important. Um, so uh, uh, keeping that in mind. So it just this just is something that's going to take time to really get uh, to complete this uh, care for the transgender patient. I, that that's yes. very clear. Well, one big uh, topic that I, I I think is very complex that I'd love your fee- feelings about is that of fertility and parenting desires and undesired pregnancy, contraception, pregnancy. Those uh, are of course you know big issues. And uh, how do you handle that? Yeah, it can be hard. Um, uh, some patients really want to get pregnant uh, or want to leave that option open at some point in the future. Some patients, the opposite, they can um, sometimes change their mind as time goes on. Um, so before a person uh, starts that transgender process, uh, you know, uh, just asking them what their fertility wishes are for the future uh, and, and at least uh, discussing the idea, for instance, cryopreservation of uh, ovarian tissue, um, uh, doing a, a sperm donation or a freezing sperm, that kind of thing, uh, to help patients spectrum if, if they're interested in that um, before you even start with treatment because the treatments can negatively impact their ability to um, to uh, achieve pregnancy in the future. The tra- um, transgender treatment, you're, of course, talking about the transition with either medical hormones or surgical. Am I correct? Yeah, you got it. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, and then the other thing, too, and um, we started talking about a second ago, but just wanted to uh, make sure because it's an important point. Um, so uh, transgender hormones uh, aren't contraception. Uh, a lot of the times, um, patients kind of, and some patients know this very, very well and have been uh, expertly educated on this. Some patients might not know this, though. And, and so making sure that uh, patients realize, you know, if they're in a relationship, if there's sexual activity in a relationship, if they're in the egg in that relationship, then there's a chance that they could meet and making sure that they have contraception. Um, uh, sometimes barrier contraception, sometimes hormonal contraception. For a transgender men, uh, at least the patients in my practice, um, sometimes they'll uh, think about either hysterectomy or think about removal of the fallopian tubes with bilateral hysterectomy. Sometimes um, they'll consider uh, an IUD, a hormonal IUD, a good choice. Um, but leaving it open and, and uh, leaving them uh, the ability to, to make the decision with what, what makes the most sense for them is important. Okay. And then uh, you broached the, the thing I was going to ask next about the gender-affirming hormone therapy. And, and you covered quite nicely the, the whole uh, idea of, of contraception. What about uh, the uh, 
transgender male who comes in and uh, accidentally or uh, desires to become pregnant and is using gender affirming hormone therapy. What do you do? Right. Um, so for some of those patients, it's uh, a matter of tapping or slowing down their hormones. Um, usually once the patient's pregnant, we usually don't continue hormones at all. We stop them. Um, and, and hormones, but, uh, you mean the testosterone. I just want to make this clear right. to our listeners. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah good point. Yep. So uh, potentially stopping or slowing down. Um, uh, usually I personally don't manage the, the transgender patient's hormones, whether it's testosterone or estrogen or that kind of thing. Um, I, I usually, um, uh, just because we're at Ohio state and we have a bunch of subspecialties, um, uh, usually we have an endocrinologist and or a family medicine physician that kind of specializes in, in transgender hormone management, uh, that go ahead and does that for us. Um, but I, in a, a particular situation, an OBGYN, uh, physician, could go ahead and take that role and that responsibility over and, and could help the patient with that. Um, so getting pregnant would be something that, that could be considered for that patient um, if they were want to. Pregnancy for some of them is something they really, really want. And pregnancy for some uh, transgender patients is a real challenge. For transgender men, it can be particularly hard because all of a sudden they feel, um, they feel that the best way to say it, they feel kind of more almost, you know, uh, sometimes the breasts will get bigger. Sometimes um, their belly will distend. Sometimes um, they'll have additional hormonal pushes towards um, uh, feeling more uh, kind of uh, like the stereotypical woman, if you would, uh, for a second. Um, uh, and uh, have that kind of the, that, that feminine kind of feeling about their body. Um, and sometimes that's great and welcome and wonderful for that patient. But sometimes it can cause difficulties and, and challenges. Um, uh, there are other challenges too. I think sometimes uh, when patients, for instance, uh, are pregnant and um, uh, in a transgender state, and and um, you know they they um, are in society and they might get other comments or they might get other looks or they might you know, have other things that they have to deal with that are unwelcome, and, and that can also be a challenge. So. Um, uh, pregnancy is an opportunity, I think, that, that can be really special and exciting for a transgender patient, but can also provide additional challenges that, that maybe we wouldn't think of other, otherwise. So you're talking about, the, they, they talk about the dysphoria or incongruence, and that, that's what you're speaking of, am I correct? Yeah. So Okay. Um, and I think that one other hormonal situation that I, I just would love to know about is the the patient who goes through a surgical transition and gets her uh, a transgender man gets gets their ovaries out and uh, or the 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 transgender man just gets old enough and has the menopause transition. And of course, we both know that that can be uh, very daunting. Uh, with uh, vasomotor symptoms, what what do you do for that? Because they're they're transitioning, they're they're wanting to use um, testosterone and, and the like, and and uh, th that, to my knowledge, is not uh, curative of of uh, vasomotor symptoms. What do you do? Yeah. So um, so uh, for instance, for a patient that's a transgender man, um, uh, not all, but a lot of time on testosterone. A lot of times their ovaries aren't working very much at that point uh, uh, anyway. And so removing their ovaries for a lot of them um, doesn't really do much as far as like 
exacerbate hot flashes, mood swings, uh, some of the more typical menopausal symptoms. So a lot of them do fine and, and don't have troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I talk with them about the, the um, what would happen though ahead of time, just in case. And, and so we have that conversation about, you know, hey, if there are hot flashes, we probably wouldn't use hormones. We'd probably think about like um, uh, an SSRI, an SNRI. We think about gabapentin. Uh, we think about other medications, um, and other drug classes to go ahead and help them through that transition. Okay. Okay. That answered. That's good. Um, now I gotta, I gotta ask what, what we do about the, the physical exam. You're, you're at that point where you've asked all your medical history things. Um, how do you approach the physical exams? Listening to you, it sounds like that may not come for a while, but, um, what do you do? Uh, just be really respectful. Be really respectful. You know, um, some patients are coming for a specific problem. And so um, just the problem focused exam. Um, some patients are uh, comfortable in the sense that, that, you know, they need the exam they need and, and it's more practical. Some patients are really uncomfortable with their body. You know, um, their body is not quite, in the, we were talking before about like the gender incongruence. Their body isn't congruent with how they see or feel themselves. So they might use different language to describe their body parts. Um, they might feel feel differently about doing different types of exams. And and so uh, just being really respectful for the patient, um, I'm meeting them where they are. Uh, I'll say something like, you know, hey, at this point, I'll usually go ahead and do a um, uh, pelvic exam that include uh, a speculum going inside a person's vagina and, and um, uh, looking at the person's cervix and doing a pap test, for instance. Um, uh, you know, uh, is that something that we should go ahead and do today? Or is that something that we should hold off on and, and focus on some other issues first? And so just really leaving it in the patient's um, uh, wheelhouse to go ahead and uh, make decisions and have the care that they want or need at the time uh, based on their comfort levels. Would you send a, a transgender uh, woman to, a, you know, you're an OBGYN, um, a, a family doc for uh, exam in, in, in that situation for, you know, like prostate exam if, if that's needed? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have had some patients, though, uh, who are transgender uh, women who have come to me after surgery who gotcha. um, they want the experience of going to an OBGYN. They want to go ahead and talk about things particularly pertinent to an OBGYN. So, for instance, like a transgender woman who has a neovagina created uh, who is now having basal dryness or sexual pain and needs to kind of figure out, you know, what do I do now? Who do I see? What happens next? Um, and, and sometimes um, uh, OBGYN is a, a great place to start for that conversation. Um, as far as thinking about like uh, vaginal lubricants, moisturizers, uh, for some patients, they wouldn't want like, uh, or maybe they're already on systemic estrogen, but maybe they need like need local estrogen um, uh, or uh, other medications to go ahead and help them through that. And so uh, I see some of those patients, or maybe they need to go see physical therapy because maybe there's some sort of issue with a, a musculoskeletal issue. Um, you, you mentioned uh, you have experts uh, in your uh, facility that to help you with some of the hormonal therapies. Um, and, you know, I always think that I've been doing the uh, stuff with menopause for over 20 years and just how hard it's been to get other OBGYNs to to even talk about estrogen with cisgender um, women. And, and now we're talking about a transgender. Um, 
would it be the best for this community just to to make sure if you don't have a facility like you do with with all the subspecialties to have somebody who's willing to do more of a uh that everybody can send their patients to so they can get more experience with it uh, how would we handle that in a smaller community uh that that doesn't have all the subspecialties like you yeah, it can be hard. Um, and so we'll have patients who come from like uh, an hour or two hours away. They come to Ohio State. And um, for them individually, that makes the most sense. Um, our people, though, I, I feel like um, uh, transgender uh, patients are everywhere. <laughs> They're not right. just in Columbus, right. not yeah. just in like certain cos- or metropolitan areas. Uh, and so, um, you know, there are pockets and you'll find them if you look hard or not, but across the country of you know, places where you wouldn't imagine, but um, uh, trans or doctors that are comfortable uh, helping transgender patients uh, or whatnot. So some of that, like you said, you know, it can be just like uh, one or two healthcare providers in a smaller community who feel more comfortable. Um, uh, sometimes it might be like that that uh, healthcare provider is the most trusted person around for, you know, uh, hours. Uh, and and so that's the person that, that needs to be able to be skilled and all that. And it's, you know, just like in medicine, it's, uh, uh, you know, you're not done learning the day you finish residency or the day <laughs> there's always learning to do. And and I feel like um, uh, some uh, healthcare providers or physicians may or may not be uh, up to this next step of the, this challenge as far as transgender care, um, because there is additional knowledge and information, understanding and management, finesse and, and wisdom that needs to happen. Um, and so, uh, so yes. So uh, I feel like some people uh, probably do need to step up, but there are other places that, that have larger centers or even just um, uh, further out, but uh, one or two providers here or there that, that could be experts. Yeah. You know, I, I always, I, I ask that because, um, you know, some of the people who are uh, getting gender affirming hormone therapy, you know, we're, we're always trained that like for estrogen, you have to worry about uh, like breast cancers and, and, and uh, DVTs and, 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 and the like. And do you, do you comment on, on any of this when you're seeing these patients or do you just leave all of that to the, the endocrinologist or whoever is helping with the uh, hormonal therapy? Yeah, I'll usually answer questions if patients have questions about that. Uh, depending on uh, my uh, doctor-patient relationship with the individual, I'll sometimes go more into those risks or sometimes less. Um, uh, some patients just, they know more than you and I would know coming into my uh, my uh, uh, um, office uh, to get care maybe for something that might be related but might be unrelated to that specific thing. Um, uh, some patients might have less education and have a little bit more uncertainty or, or insecurity when it comes to all that. And so I uh, kind of warrant a further conversation. Yeah, good question. Well, I, any, anything else that you can think of that would add to the care of a transgender uh, patient that we could communicate with our audience? Yeah, so uh, something else that's really big that that um, uh, I experience a fair amount is patients want trans or they want gender affirming surgery, um, and, and um, I think we've come a long way just in the past like 10, 15 years on this. Um, but there's still a lot of hassles and heartbreaks and, and that kind of thing with all this. Some insurance companies um, still need documentation from two mental health providers with letters. Um, they need uh, uh, two separate uh, OBGYNs or other types of healthcare providers to uh, also 
uh, certify that the patient uh, warrants the the trans or the gender affirming surgery, uh, whether it's hysterectomy or bilateral septinephrectomy or both. Um, and that can just be really frustrating for the patients. And so um, uh, making sure that you're supportive of patients or have the office staff, which is sometimes really hard when all of our days are way too short and all of our tasks uh, are way too long. Um, but doing your best, to kind of, uh, do your best to, to help those patients through that process is important. Um, you know, um, the care is um, medically necessary uh, from my perspective and also from uh, ACOG's perspective. Um, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says that the surgery is appropriate for these patients, that it's medically necessary. And, and so continuing to be an advocate in whatever way is comfortable for, for that healthcare provider I think is important, whether it's uh, donating money, whether it's being an active, outspoken person in the community, whether it's wearing a button on your sleeve that just says, you know, hey, um, uh, I feel comfortable with um, uh, patients of, of different backgrounds or ethnicities or genders or transgender um, I think that's all important. Um, the other thing, too, uh, I think is important is that some providers don't feel comfortable with this, um, either from um, their upbringing or because of religious issues or ethical issues or moral issues. And, and so I think it's also important to say that hopefully nobody ever gets forced to go ahead and do something they feel is unethical or immoral. Um, and so if um, a, per, a healthcare provider is ever in the situation where they don't feel comfortable in a situation um, and making sure that you use cautious, careful language uh, to be respectful for the patient, but then going ahead and helping the patient to go ahead and find somebody else who can provide that appropriate care is important. Um, uh, nobody should ever be forced to do something against their morals or against their ethics, um, but they can at least help uh, to pass that patient on to the next provider who hopefully would be able to. So I think that's also important. And I feel like um, uh, healthcare providers at varying levels, just as sometimes patients are at varying levels is of comfort and um, knowledge and understanding with their bodies and their situations and their gender and their um, their outlook on life. I think healthcare providers can sometimes be in a um, that state of transition as well as far as where they are in, in support of transgender patients um, that um, that there's education and understanding and and I feel like a lot of that uh, comes uh, not just from book learning, but from patient experience uh, and for understanding the stories that these patients will tell us when they come to see us. Uh, I think the thing that really kind of drove me to go ahead and um, think differently about transgender care was just the fact that um, uh, so many of these patients uh, do have, unfortunately, experiences with suicidality or have experiences with um, uh, physical or emotional or sexual assault. Uh, and how um, this uh, um, this process of of going through to the gender um, uh, that they deserve to have or that they want to have or that um, uh, for whatever reason they um, they uh, transition to that can be life affirming for them and and that can go ahead and just be world and and, and game changing for them to the point that you know a lot of those different health conditions or a lot of those different mental health conditions or, or other types of things can sometimes fade away or improve or change or, or um, just get better in so many different ways. Uh, so I feel like it's in some ways life-saving for some of these patients to really get the care that they deserve and, and be able to transition into this transgender process in the way that they see is fit.
Well, I, you've given a tremendous overview of of taking care of the transgender patient, and uh, you obviously have a lot of experience and expertise in this. And I, I appreciate and really appreciate your uh, attitude towards just helping people live their best life. And I think we've talked about that together. Um, you've certainly talked to us about education. Um, in the uh, November 20 of 22, uh, we talked on an episode about uh, uh, medical education regarding uh, sexual medicine issues. And so uh, I've really appreciated all of your insight here. And thank you again for your time uh, today. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation, really important topic. And I'm so glad that you're addressing this. Thank you so much, Dr. Gibbs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.